Because when you set a rule to say, okay, this is a line and that's a dot, that's one thing. But now this is a squiggly line and this dot is to the left. That's another thing altogether. Telling a computer that it's still a line confuses the computer. But if you told the computer, this is an S and this is a squiggly line, and it had artificial intelligence, it would understand the difference between the two. And that's where a lot of our development has come into now, using AI behind the scenes in vision and blending it with traditional vision. So not only do we have the rules of traditional vision, Hello and welcome to another episode of Making It in Ontario, the official podcast of the Trillium Network for Advanced Manufacturing. I'm your host, Nick Persichilli, and in this episode, Brendan and I chat with Sean Horton, Director of Marketing and Business Development at Windsor's own AIS Technologies Group. AIS Tech is a manufacturing automation company working in the automotive, aerospace, agriculture, logistics, pharmaceutical, and food and beverage industries. While historically an automotive supplier called AB Automation, They merged with a vision automation company called Radix Technologies in 2016. This merger allowed both companies to share technology and provide their customers with more advanced solutions than either company could have individually. What I liked about this episode was that it demonstrated how technology that only a few years ago was considered cutting edge is already being improved upon. When discussing artificial intelligence and machine learning, one must remember that in order for this technology to work, it has to be trained or taught what to look for. So just like a human, an AI needs practice or training to learn a new skill. Well, AIS Technologies has been able to develop an AI that can learn quicker than previous versions, a smarter AI. Check the timestamp. Sean explains the nuts and bolts of this much better than I can here. We also discussed the distinction between task automation and job replacement. This issue comes up a lot in our chats about automation, both on and off the mics. Many industry professionals still don't fully appreciate that one is very different from the other. Let's take a moment and discuss the job of quality control inspector, regardless of the industry or product. The job of quality control inspector is to inspect the quality of the products produced and report and fix any issues they find. Contained in the job are numerous tasks. Some tasks need training and mentorship to master, like knowing how to properly inspect a jet engine fan blade at the microscopic level while others are so mind-numbingly boring that they're almost a distraction from the job, like, say, walking back to the mailroom to get another pen. This list of tasks, both the learned skills and the boring stuff, collectively is the job. What some manufacturers have come to realize is that by removing the distracting and mundane tasks, they improve the overall quality of the job. It's not about replacing the inspectors with automation. It's about providing the inspectors with the tools they need to better do their jobs. And as we learned in this episode, those tools are getting better. Still in Windsor, here we are once again, still with Brendan Sweeney. Hello, Brendan, say hello. Hello. Hello, and we are now with another new friend. Would you please introduce yourself, sir? Good afternoon, my name is Sean Horton. I am the Director of Marketing and Business Development with AIS Technologies Group. Thank you for coming on the mics with us today. Now, tell us a little bit about where you're working, what you're doing, and uh, some of the stuff AIS is up to. Wow. That's a, that's a lot of different things to speak about in I one know. shot. <laughs> so AIS Technologies Group has been in the automation business since uh, 2003, uh, originally as AB Automation, 
grew up over the years. It evolved out of the uh, mold company, which it AIS was, and uh, formed up as AIS. Ooh, I believe that was uh, 2007 when that occurred. Grew and grew and grew. And in 2016, they merged with a company called Radix. Radix Technologies, which was primarily vision and automation. They thought there would be great synergies between the two. Now, Radix had uh, software and vision systems in their repertoire, if you will. And when they came together, it took a couple of years, but what we were fundamentally able to do was start taking tooling and adding vision inspection and bringing those two things together. So the customers of AIS Former were now able to take advantage of this new vision inspection automation, tying it in. At the same time, all the technologies that AIS had developed over the years were able to be traded to the Radix group, and now the vision inspections were enjoying a lot more sophistication in their automation and growing that way. And that's, uh, that's really where the company came from, if you will. Let's geek out a bit. Tell me a little bit about the vision systems. What are they looking at? Well, when you do a vision inspection, you're typically looking at presence, absence, verification. You could be looking at pattern recognition to identify whether something's askew in a pattern. So that could be applied to surfaces. Or you could be looking at human-readable characters. So OCR, which is one aspect, or OCV, which is optical character validation and optical character recognition. These are some of the primary elements that you're doing with vision inspection. As inspection gets more complicated, though, rule-based vision, which is traditional machine vision, has to kind of go out the window. Because when you set a rule to say, okay, this is a line and that's a dot, that's one thing. But now this is a squiggly line and this dot is to the left. That's another thing altogether. Telling a computer that it's still a line confuses the computer. But if you told the computer, this is an S and this is a squiggly line and it had artificial intelligence, it would understand the difference between the two. And that's where a lot of our development has come into now, using AI behind the scenes in vision and blending it with traditional vision. So not only do we have the rules of traditional vision, but now we have a computer that's actually thinking about how to apply the rule. So, Sean, traditionally, these roles, these tasks, would have been the responsibility of a person. Mm, yes. So before we, before you and I actually sat down in this room here, we had a, a bit of a, a chat, mm -hmm. and we were talking about automation and the perception of taking jobs away Correct. from things. Yes. You had issue with that perception. Absolutely. Absolutely. What was that issue? When you look at robotics and vision inspection, these are actually enhancements to the human. As opposed to someone looking at a part and then applying arbitrary chalk marks to say it was there, having a computer do that visual inspection for you and you verify that the computer actually did the right thing is a whole different game. If I can equip you with a tool now, uh, here's a great example. We have a system called multi-format vision system, which is MVS for short. And part of the system allows an operator to take a mobile phone, walk up to a specific area, take an image, send it off, have it analyzed, and returned in about a second 
validating the work was done correctly. So think about this. You're working in a cell now, and you're doing your assembly work, and you say, okay, great, it's ready to send off down the line to the next person. Snap a photo. Within a second, it comes back and says, yeah, you did your work right. Now you've validated the person, you've enhanced their job, and you've elevated their role in technology going forward. At the same time, traceability for the product has improved tremendously. When we give these type of tools to a typical operator on the floor, we're elevating them because no longer, I, I'm trading out your chalk marker for a keyboard, right? And it's a much better job to play with a keyboard and a mouse than to have to scramble around and do odds and ends. So every time that we do that and we can remove the individual from the labor aspect, great. Additionally, when we do that, a lot of the times we're removing a safety aspect as well. Instead of putting someone in harm's way to complete a task, whenever you can robotize or automate it to remove that, perfect. And in other cases where you're working cobots, where a robot is working with an individual side by side, that's another new advantage because now they can do the heavy lifting and take the strain and fatigue off of the individual, but still work in proximity to one another and get the job done, making work lighter, easier for the individual, making their life better. I like the fact that more and more people that we've spoken to are distinguishing between a job and a task. Because while, yes, you can certainly automate a lot of tasks, the job itself is more than just a collection of tasks, right? It is, you're right, you need the tools to do it. Mm -hmm. While I was setting up the microphones, Yourself, Brendan, and Ehrman had the chance to take a quick tour. What did I miss? Our ongoing uh, learning about just how complicated certain automotive parts, or how maybe not complicated, complex, how uh, certain automotive parts and fascias and bumpers are getting as we add technology. If we add some really useful technology, and in many cases critical technology, to vehicles, and so the need to have accurate inspection is is vital moving forward and we learned and i'm sure sean tell us a bit more about the difference between machine vision and human vision well that's the thing is when you look at as humans we're fallible you know and the speak for yourself (laughs) (laughs) the fact of the matter is when we take on the task of inspection after you've inspected four five ten twenty bumpers or fascias we all start getting a little bored. And that's just a fact of the matter. So if your job requires you to inspect 200 fascias or bumpers in the course of a day, I guarantee you at some point you got distracted by thinking about your cat at home or your wife or your husband or whomever, whatever, and you may have missed something. Vision inspection doesn't do that. It's 24-7, every shift, consistent, all the time doing that inspection. And that's what you're looking at with an automation project like that, where you're between the human and the robotic or automated vision systems. I would go so far to say that we've also taken another step. Traditionally, when you put these parts together, you would put sensors in so that you could actually lay the part down in a fixture, and then the sensors would kick in and go, oh, okay, I sense that there is a clip here. uh, I sense there's a clip, a sensor, or you know, another device within a molded element. This was great thinking, 90s. Jump forward, 
Now I can lay that same part on a table and instead of having a $100,000 fixturing system with electronics trying to fuel their way, if you will, to see if something's in place, I can snap a picture and do the same thing and have that intelligence go through and identify, yes, this clip's here, this sensor's here, this clip is actually engaged and fully installed. A wiring harness is in place, right? A bracket is in place, oriented correctly. And that's just an automotive. Imagine doing that inside of an aircraft. And what you find is those clips that they have in automotive, very similar to those that are in aerospace. And you know those cable ties they use in automotive? They're just more expensive in aerospace. This was several years ago, visiting a, a, you know, a large aerostructures facility in Ontario and just seeing the extent of manual work that was still going on. I mean, sealing rivets with something akin to a Q-tip and then inspecting it with a flashlight. And I couldn't help but think, there's a better way to do this. And, 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 you know, it's, it's, it's not an automotive part that you can hold in your hand and then build a fixture. You'd need a much bigger fixture. But they had fixtures holding that aerostructure. And whether it's aerospace, whether it's food safety, I mean, the applications must be um, limitless. That's actually one of the biggest challenges that you face is trying to understand where to start. You know, there's so many different ways to approach these industries and the challenges that they have. And... Where do, where do you start with it? Agriculture, you know, we we talk to the farming industry all the time about how could we pick, how could we do this, how could we do that? And what you find is not everybody wants to start at the same place because my pain is different than your pain in many different reasons. The guy who grows cucumbers has different pains than the guy who grows peppers. So how you approach it becomes very... Uh, resource consuming to say the least as far as development is concerned so for us looking at automotive and the other like industries we say like industries when we talk about mechanical assembly and this type of thing so heavy equipment aerospace rail marine they all have very similar mechanical elements that go with them so for us developing that out first and then start considering how you can go into these weird and wonderful things like agriculture where nothing is a square. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What you just reminded me of was, was a, a, it, it kind of goes into the discussion of culture and corporate culture and shop floor culture. And David Yeeman, one of the first ones we did, we talked about, he talked about uh, the culture on the shop floor. Let me back up. If your company culture values stability, Investing in new technology is a, it's a bit of a, oh, wow, what is this? Whereas if you value innovation, give it here, right? If I can be a little reductive, but in your sales efforts, where do you find yourselves hitting your head in terms of like, hey, this is not replacing anyone's job. This is augmenting it. Oh, but we've got, you know, we've got Mike who's here been doing it for, you know, decades and he knows what he's doing, but... How do you get over that hump where it's like, no, 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 we're here to help. We're here to augment. How do you get over that? And what, what are the cultural, corporate cultural challenges of that? Talk to Mike. Talk to the operator. Get them involved. They'll tell you their pains. And if you show them how to solve their pains by using your product, there you go. That's how you go through. Interesting. Stop, stop talking to the plant manager. He knows the ultimate pain of his gross profit going out the door. 
But if you talk to the operator, if you talk to the person on the floor who's having to do this day in and day out and say, how can I make your life better? Then you're really hitting on something that people will buy into. Because if my employee is happy and I'm getting more productivity, that's a double win. Right. And, and there's, there's some AI, some machine learning technologies, applications within these vision systems, and that needs human input to work, correct? Oh, absolutely. It's, when you're dealing with AI, there's, there's two teaching methodologies with AI, supervised and unsupervised. So supervised training, in a nutshell, is for vision. I give you 100 images of good condition. So this is, these are correct. And we go in and we have someone teach that those 100 are correct. Now we take another sample of 50. Some are correct, some are not. And we feed them into the system. And, we, and this is unsupervised. And we let the machine make the determination, is it right or wrong? And we find the anomalies where it's said, this is wrong, but it's actually right. And we train those in. And we say, this is actually right as well. And we add to the training set. Then we do it again, unsupervised. So that this is how AI learns. But the only people who can do this are the people who know what is right and what is wrong. So the tribal knowledge that is stuck in Mike's head gets into the AI because you involve them in the training, in the development work. At the same time, they're the ones who know the nuances and can show you the roadblocks up front so that you're not just training in garbage. Because let's face it, garbage in, garbage, garbage out. out. Yep. So, Sean, you also mentioned, you touched on something else that a lot of companies also, it's a bit of a daunting prospect. Where to start? Where do you start the journey? Because I've seen lots of shops that on the surface of it, they look like, you know, it's a typical shop, but inside they've got great tech, their people are trained, their machinery is learning, their machinery is collecting data. And yet some companies also, they're a little bit more reticent. How do you get over that hump? How do you, how would you tell a company to where to start this journey? Again, it goes back to the pain point. Go, to, when you're looking at, hey, let's face it, we're talking, in my case, we're talking about inspection automation and how to do this with vision. If I'm there talking to you, I want to know, how does your process work? Where are you having problems? What is your quality challenge? Because ultimately this is, typically a quality-based idea. It's a quality-based system. I'm going to improve your quality by reducing the number of errors or defects that are allowed through a system. So you're going to be looking at where do defects occur in my system? Trace it down. Go upstream. Every time that you say, okay, well, an error is arriving to me, how did it get here? And move it up the stream until you reach the point where it's rare that something occurs from this point above me. And now looking at the cascade down, where does it really start to affect? And when does it really start to happen? That's your point where you want inspection or immediately following. Do companies always know that they're experiencing pain points? Sometimes they have to be shown. Uh, sometimes people just uh, Sometimes people just walk around with blinders on and they don't want to see it. They just accept it as a, this is a cost of doing business. It's always been this way. There's no other way to do it. And sometimes if you're invited in and you have the opportunity to show them, 
as long as you can show them in black and white, right, without subjectivity, then that's the way it's done. Let's talk a little bit about skilled trades and people. Yes. Where do your people come from? Where do you get them? University? Are they students? Are they, uh, where do you fill your talent pipeline? So for us, we typically work closely with uh, St. Clair College here in Windsor, also with the University of Windsor for uh, talents coming out of both. Uh, other than that, other colleges in the, in the region, we tend to find people. And we also tend to find people just hanging around. At, I'm kidding. At <laughs> other companies. Um, no. Um, <clears throat> but typically, typically the talent pool that we, we start with um, entry level purely for the fact that we can get someone out of uh, one of those college or university programs and have them from a junior to an intermediate level within about three months. And from there, it's a much longer course to become a senior. But we can get them up and operating and being able to help us develop things within about three months. So fairly short learning curve on that respect, but they've already gone through two to three years worth of schooling and understand the basics behind the basic mechanics behind vision and uh, automation. Let's talk about life after auto and beyond auto. Can you tell us about some of your clients outside of the auto space? Sure. As I said, uh, a lot of the a lot of the systems we developed for automotive are very similar in many other industries. What I do for a vision inspection for a clip or a bracket or a fuse holder in automotive, I can easily do in heavy equipment. I can also do that in marine, small engine, aerospace, anywhere that you have propulsion, it could be done. So when you have these systems developed in one, they can go to many. And that's, that's the key here, is being able to develop systems that you can take from this industry to the next with very little, let's use Parado's rule, 80-20. 80% of the work is already done. I just have to tweak the last 20% to make it work in this new industry. And that's, that's how we like to evolve our products and services. Given the experience in automotive, though, is that a great proving ground? for When, when someone knows, oh, if you can do it for OEM and Tier 1 automotive with their very specific and uh, nuanced requirements, you can do it for anyone. It is a feather in the cap, that's for sure. The only time that that's not exactly looked upon uh, favorably is aerospace. They have a different set of uh, qualitative goals there. They're not so much quantity, but quality for sure. But even then, they respect the fact that the automotive industry has developed uh, great quality programs and the fact that you're able to achieve a qualitative state with high quantity now just in aerospace, it's tuned down so much more as far as, sure, I'm not driving out a thousand pieces of this and maybe 10, but all of a sudden I've got a quality system which will just do magical for me, magic and help me get through that next step. Aerospace is a great point where they still destroy more trees than anybody else I know in industry because everything's paper, 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 as far as their quality checks and such, it's just they need to have that traceability. And now with the new systems that we've been developing here, such as MBS, traceability is it's actually a SQL database in the background, holds the image, 
ties it in with all the data, all the metadata, right, related to that image. So I know the part number, the serial number, tied to the image, tied to the date, right, tied to the time it was made. I can put it to a batch, all these different things. And here's the beautiful thing. Now I can query on it. So when I find out that this part was wrong, I can go back and then look at traceability and say, okay, that got out wrong. Now I can look 500 parts above and 500 parts behind and see what happened without any issue. Instead of having, you know, reams and reams of paper in front of me, I have a computer screen and a menu, much simpler. And, and that could, when I think about aerospace too, the amount of MR maintenance and repair work that goes after, where basically large parts, of, a majority of the plane is rebuilt every every few years by MRO organizations. There's a big one at the airport here. And I mean, that w could really help support MRO organizations and OEMs if they can dig in and go, okay, what, you know, what's due to be replaced right now? Well, let's look at the original. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And when you take that on and you look at their mechanisms that are currently in place in an MRO or an OEM or any rebuild of, thinking of landing gear companies and such, they all use something called a traveler. When they're building up a component or building up a piece, they have a traveler. And the traveler is basically a bill of material. And it moves along with the part as it's getting built up. And it's like a checklist that you go through. And one of the things that we've developed here is the electronic version of the traveler. So now when you say scan this part in, and okay, now I've got that bill of material item number. Great. It's scanned in and it's logged into my electronic traveler. And by the way, I have an image of it now correctly assembled. So all these things tie in and now you no longer have this, again, the ream of paper is gone. It's an electronic file you can call up and be able to inspect from top to bottom. So that traceability is incredibly important. You can save it in a million different places if you need to, to make sure it's safe. Yeah. So, Sean, over the course of recording this podcast, I've come to understand that the availability of technology has really come down. Like, for example, what's sitting on your desk right now, my microphone's here. Here we are in 2022, and now I can record all of this in beautiful quality. So, all this technology is coming down. I can turn any room into a recording. The cost? The cost of the technology? Sorry. The cost of, yes, thank you, Brenda. The cost of the technology is coming down. Quality is going up. And I found that that's also true in a lot of manufacturing, in, in the world of manufacturing. The cost of Industry 4.0 is coming down. This, the cost of these vision, vision systems is coming down. So my question is, what, what does the floor look like for this kind of technology? Because I feel like if it's now more accessible to more companies who should be looking at this technology that right now maybe isn't? And maybe they think, oh, it's not for us. We're too small, let's say. Hmm. Well, I, I threw a number out on the floor uh, when we were walking around and we were talking about when does it come more advantageous to use AI system over a traditional uh, rule-based vision? And it used to be a course where you would have to have uh, 100 or 200 inspections before AI really became valid as far as a cost-effective way. Now, it's about 30 inspections. Because if, if you look at the cost of a traditional system and the amount of effort that goes into programming it, and you said 30 inspections, 
when you do this with the AI, there's a balancing act between hardware licensing of software and the amount of time it takes to actually program. So AI, it's easier to program, but it costs more in licensing. However, with the system we've developed here, now there's a number of other elements that come into it. Now I can actually build my pre-built PLC communication strings into it and all these other aspects already into the AI block. So now the cost to program on that side is lower. I've only incrementally raised my price to offset the licensing. So what we found now is the magic number seems to be about 30 inspections. So if you have a fascia, which can take 50 to 60 inspections alone, if you're going to do this with fixed camera or a robot with two cameras, you know, a couple of robots with cameras doing it that way, you're probably going to be more cost effective to do the hardware side to do it with AI versus traditional vision for the, all the programming, all the effort that you're going to go through. So when we isolate it from a technology standpoint and we say traditional versus AI, if you're at 30 inspections, come see us. So just to clarify, when you say programming, you mean you mean literally teaching the computer saying, this is a good one, just kind of like what you were saying before, right? This is an example of a good one. This is an example of a good one. This is an example of a bad one. Is that what you mean by that? or? Uh, when I say programming and we're talking in traditional rule-based vision, it's a lot more complicated than that. Oh, okay. Here, I'm teaching you this, is, this blob should look this way and should always look this way. And this blob should look that way. And this edge should always appear here. And that's why it's so much more tedious. When you deal with AI, it's see this. If you don't see this, it's wrong. If you see, but you can see it this way, this way, this way, this way, this way, and carry on. So that's how AI learns. You know, when you ask a three-year-old to draw a house, you might get a block. A four-year-old might give a block with a triangle on top. The five-year-old's gonna give a block, triangle, a door, and probably a window and so on and so forth as you grow. Teaching the AI system that the block, the block with the triangle and these other ones are houses is what the key is. The traditional rule base wouldn't have understood that the triangle was part of the house. So again, Sean, I, I missed the tour, so I didn't get to see a bunch of the people here, but as I was walking in, your workforce seemed very young, very diverse, Tell us a little bit about some of the people here. Tell us about some of the jobs that are available here. Who's doing what here? Well, you're right. Diversity and age are no issue here at AIS. The fact of the matter is this. We do have a younger workforce purely for the fact that we hire from the colleges and universities directly. And we try to promote growing organically that way. So you promote from within? We promote within from within for sure. Um, as far as uh, our workforce is concerned, we have a, a very diverse and I'm going to say ageless workforce, mainly for the fact that we've taken, <clears throat> we've taken a lot of people who over the years have developed great knowledge about vision and automation and tooling, and we've blended that very well with new entrants. Uh, to the marketplace as far as kids coming out of school at the college level or university level and worked worked very hard to bring their knowledge into it because they're learning things in school new and bringing them. So it's a value to us as well to keep our ears and eyes open of what they're coming through the door with because we deal with not only 
vision applications and PLC control systems. We also have software that we're developing too. And we're, all those things come together. So it's great to have an open mind. Right now we're on the lookout for PLC controls, programming people, vision people, software people. So come on down and show us your resume. Don't be afraid. So Ehrman here, who's been sitting quietly while uh, we've been recording here, just kind of slid me a note and asked me to ask you about Industry 4.1. Now, I know about Industry 4.0. What's Industry 4.1? Is that just Industry 4.0 with a subwoofer? Or like, how does, what's that? It's about taking Industry 4.0 technology and thinking and advancing it as far as you can. Take, take that next level thinking before you jump off and go, well, that's Industry 5.0. No, no, it's 4.1. You have to take the next incremental step. So for us, taking... That next incremental step is very important. That's how you innovate. That's how you advance things. So when we look at vision, for instance, or automation, we're never afraid to say, well, what's the next step? How do we make this go further? How do we take that next step beyond and innovate it? And that's Industry 4.1, because if you're just doing 4.0, you're doing what everybody else is doing. Sadly, that's true. For Industry 4.0 is here. It's not really the future anymore. It's the active present. Correct. Correct. AIS and Automate Canada are, to some degree, are, are closely linked. And at, we at Trillium have done some work with Automate Canada in the past. And you are on the board of Automate Canada. Could you tell us a bit about Automate Canada and, and uh, your role and what the organization is all about? Well, I mean, it's been a, a privilege to be on the board of Automate Canada. I'm one of the founding board members with them. Knowing that the objective of Automate Canada is, of course, share that Canada can be first and foremost in the automation sector is paramount. We have a great, great skill set in this country, and we need to share it and make people aware of it, how, just how strong it is. When you look in Windsor alone, there's over 300 automation companies in in a 40-mile radius of here. Now, that says a lot. This, this is a huge sector to be very proud of. And with Automate Canada, it's about getting the knowledge out there. Technology is key. It's going to be here. It's going to go forward. And as Canadians, we need to embrace it and help advance it, especially in manufacturing in itself. AIS, as I mentioned, um, has been part of Automate Canada since its inception, really. And uh, we're very proud of that. What's what's next for Automate Canada? What's on the docket uh, in December 2022 and uh, for 2023? With Automate Canada, there's a, a number of programs that they're working on as far as, um, you know, FIRST Robotics and partnering with them and developing different ideas with that. And also partnering with more colleges and universities to help promote the idea of technology, not only in youth, but also amongst uh, women entering technology. So we're very proud of the fact that these things are moving forward and we're we're advancing so much further. Sean, I'm going to ask you a very broad question, but only because we've discussed this in a very broad manner with a lot of manufacturers, and we always get very interesting answers. So I'm going to ask you the same question. Talk to me about the skilled trades. You mean the lack of them? Exactly. Yes. Uh, The fact of the matter is this, 
in Canada, we need more skilled trades. We have spent so much time pushing kids into the idea of white collar and they have to use this, that, and the other thing as far as technology is concerned. And we've given ourselves a gap. We need people who are able to pick up a wrench or pick up a keyboard to program a robot. We need these people working today. We have a deficit where that is concerned. Actually, we have a drought, to say the least. Here in Windsor, we run into it more often than not because we have such a need. Automotive is such a glut when it comes to this type of thing. And it's becoming even more so when we look at the electrification of automotive. And a lot of people don't recognize this, and you have to understand, we are in for a spell of 15 to 20 years where we will be doubling production, not in volume, but in spaces. You see, in North America, we sell 17, 18 million cars a year. That's you know, vehicles, light trucks, cars, 17, 18 million. Number doesn't really rise or fall too much unless you have a major recession happen, but that number's up there. It's not gonna get any bigger whether you have electric or ice, but what's gonna happen is it's gonna split. You're gonna have some vehicles ice, some vehicles electric, but you still have to make them both. So all of a sudden your duplication occurs. So you need more space in order to run this line or that line, or you need more flexible lines. And that's actually, it's actually one of the areas where we're pushing is flexible lines because with vision you can do that type of thing. However, skilled trades are still needed. Now I need two people, one on this line, one on that line. So when we talk about the major mega battery plant coming into Windsor, we're all applauding it. That's fantastic. But we also recognize that those skilled trades are going to have to come from somewhere. And when a big company comes in with deep pockets, they're going to take the cream of the crop off the top. And that's going to come from everybody else out here. So we need skilled trades and we need them in the pipeline now so that in five years, we're able to start substituting what's happening in the industry. We're very fortunate here at AIS Technologies Group where we can use people out of school and simply grow them in organically. And we can do it at a fairly regular rate because we have good programs. But not everybody's as fortunate as us. So how do we do this? What's, uh, I mean, I'm sure there's a number of solutions out there. What's your preferred solution? I like the auto magical one where I poof yeah. and it just happens. <laughs> right now we have to start talking to kids in basically in elementary school. And we also have to start talking to their parents and teaching mom and dad that, hey, guess what? It's okay. If you want to go be a plumber, go be a plumber. Do what's going to make you happy. And if a skilled trade is what's going to make you happy, then do it. And you know, it's not for everyone. It definitely isn't. My son is a skilled trade. He's a carpenter. And he goes out there and he, he battles the elements all day. And, you know, whether it's hot, cold, freezing rain, whatever. But he loves it. He does it. He enjoys it. Not my cup of tea, but that's what he feels good doing. So be it. That's what he needs to do. And I promote the idea with every parent out there, let your kids do what they love. And hopefully... Some of them are going to find their way into skilled trades, and some will do whatever else they want to do, right? But not everybody can have their own podcast. 
actually, yeah, you're, <laughs> you are very correct. Um, <laughs> that's true. I am very blessed. <laughs> Sean, I want to thank you for your time, for your insights, and for letting us into your company today. This was this has been fantastic. You've uh, you've educated us a lot, and uh, yeah, thank you. Oh, you're very welcome. I was glad I was able to uh, afford you guys the opportunity to come in, see everything, and talk a little bit about this. And I uh, really look forward to giving you the correct email address for my HR. <laughs> Wonderful, Sean. Thank you very much. <laughs>